0: I'm Bill Hemmer. This is Hemmer Time. I think, um, given the COVID, we all need to take a breather every once in a while. So I'm doing that this week. I'll be at the beach, but don't worry. I want to leave you something that I find very interesting. Back in early March of this year, I was speaking with tech journalist and author Stephen Levy, who had just released a new book. It details the inner workings and relationships within the world of Facebook. It's called Facebook, the inside story. Now, social media giants like Twitter and Facebook have sparked a lot of controversy over the issue of fact-checking and political ads. And, in fact, just last month, Twitter fact-checked a tweet by President Trump about mail-in voting and voter fraud. Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg responded to the new feature on the daily briefing with my colleague, Dana Perino on the Fox News channel. We have a different policy, I I think, than Twitter on this. You know, I I just believe strongly that that Facebook shouldn't be uh, the arbiter of truth of
1: everything that people say online.
0: So I thought it was important to revisit this interview and see how Zuckerberg views his company's role in the world today and the triumphs and the failures of the social media platform in its almost two decade long run. Would Mark Zuckerberg argue with what you have produced
1: on paper? He would. Uh, he told me directly that he disagreed with some of it. You know, he disputes some of it, but uh, he thought it was fair.
0: Mm. You begin in August of 2016, the book does anyway, in Lagos, Nigeria. Why was he so keen on visiting Africa?
1: Zuckerberg had never been to the continent, and he wants to learn about things that could help his goal of extending Facebook to everyone in the world. So when he goes to Africa, he doesn't go to remote villages and hold babies. Uh, He goes there and talks to entrepreneurs. Uh, He talks to political leaders to see how we could get facebook uh integrated into the country um in this case he talked about how he can get uh facebook or the internet and then facebook in the hands of people who live there uh, by sending up a satellite which would extend internet uh to africans and let them use facebook for free it's an enormous market yeah so massive well it's growth Growth is what drives Facebook, and, you know, so it's a very fertile place for him to visit because, you know, uh, there's a lot of room to grow. I was in Africa that same year. I was in Uganda, and I will
0: tell you how I came to understand the power of Facebook. I had a driver. His name was Mugi. He was 26 years old, had a fourth-grade education. You know what Mugi had? Because he worked for the United Nations, so we had contact with a lot of Westerners coming into Kampala. He had an iPhone. He took pictures of his country all day long. You know what he did at night? Facebook? He posted his photos to Facebook. There are two things in this world Moogie loves. Guinness beer and Manchester United football team. Mm -hmm. Think about that. All right, so Facebook knows where in the world the market is for all these massive companies
1: all over the globe. For many countries, Facebook is synonymous with the internet. They think that... That what they do on Facebook is all they need on the Internet. So it's not a question of where else to go or the competition. It is Facebook or nothing. Hmm. So you write on page two that he wanted to meet with nerds with
0: dreams. And I didn't realize this, but apparently he has posters that say, be the
1: nerd. Yeah. Does he consider himself one? I think in a way he does, you know, uh, it's interesting. I wrote a book about hackers. That was my first book. Mm -hmm. And not the people who break into computers, but the people who fulfill their dreams on computers, the people who wake up in the morning and, and eat, sleep and certainly program on computers. And he loves that vision. And if you go to the headquarters of Facebook, all over the walls, there's all these posters. Some of them say, move fast and break things. Maybe we'll talk about mm-hmm. that. But a lot of them just say, hack. I'm a hacker. Or be the nerd, which means you know, uh, be the kind of person who tries to change the world by banging code in, uh, on a keyboard. And, and Stephen,
0: th- there's a big debate as to whether or not Facebook is making our lives better or worse.
1: What do you think he would come down in that argument? Well, he would say better. And he would, like an engineer does, he would say, look, look at all the things that people do at Facebook that aren't harmful, that, that bring them benefits. And it's true. You go on Facebook. It's your birthday. People say, you know, from all phases of your life, right? Maybe people you knew in high school uh, as well as people who are close to you say, happy birthday, But uh, there's a lot of toxic things that happen. And he, in a way, he still thinks of it like it's a dorm room project where students are using it, where the bad things that happen might cause you discomfort at a party or something like that. And has been very slow to realize that when things go wrong on Facebook now, people can die. Talk about that toxic nature. What what does he say about
0: the allegations of interference on behalf of Russia and the Election of 2006. What's his position in 2006?
1: Well, at at, at first, you know, it was sort of uh, the stages of grief, right? You know, the denial and and all the way down to where it is now, acceptance. And Facebook is saying they're sorry. Hmm. How would I even know about a Russian ad that targets me? Well, you wouldn't because it wouldn't look like a Russian ad. It's, it's not in Russian. Facebook maybe should have known because they paid for it in rubles. Now they say, uh, if someone tries to buy a political ad in rubles, they might not take, take the rubles. But, uh, it would look like so- something that came from anyone else on your network. And it probably would be something that you might want to engage in because it would be targeting you, uh, knowing something about you.
0: Mm. Deep in your book page four sixty six only because we 're on this topic here you talk about subject matters categories like jew haters right i 'm just how did he that, that was something that popped up
1: yeah something yeah. they
0: had to manage what happened there?
1: what happens is that Facebook uses this you know automated ad system it scales you know so so much they have five million advertisers, so it's not like a person is like in a class of you know like a, with taking ads on a classified ads thing, sitting there and writing it down, it's, it's automated. And they have all sorts of categories that come up, popped up by artificial intelligence that determines, you know, who gets to see what ads. So if you make up a category that maybe no one else had used before, uh, Facebook will accept it. And in this case, some journalists that disco- discovered that typing in Jew hater uh, gives a, an audience for you to find people uh, who adhere to that category. This is hate speech. Totally, totally, and and it's something that time and again Facebook rolls out things that they, they think this is great, um, but they don't look around the corner to see how it could be abused, and that's one just one of many,
0: many do, examples. Do, do
1: you think that they've been able as a company to figure out how to ferret that out yet? Well, now they're saying, "Gee, we're now we're we're, we're going to take this policy of trying to really figure out consequences before we roll things out." But isn't that something that every companies should do from day one, especially when they're operating in such scale that Facebook has been doing for years. Why do you think it hasn't happened then? Because Facebook, as I I talk about in the book, uh, became obsessed with growth. And growth was the number one priority. And uh, it became their mission as much as their stated mission of connecting the world. They figured connecting the world is our mission. So in order to do that, we've got to grow. So anything we do to grow is then worthwhile. It's the ultimate ends justifies the means. So if, well, with growth comes revenue, right? Yeah. And how, how much does he care about money? He cares about money to the extent, and again, it's very circular. So we need money so we can grow. So it it, it is not that he's sitting there counting his pennies. He's not Scrooge McDuck bouncing up and down. You know in all the cash that that he's you know gained, and believe me, there's a lot of cash, the guy is worth you know forty billion dollars or something today, yeah today, and you know uh, so uh, but he that doesn't matter as much to him as having Facebook everywhere as fulfilling those goals and growing. so if you look at the priorities in the company, it really is you know uh, where that the, this growth team that he built up. Uh, got whatever it Mm -hmm. wanted to fulfill the growth, and no one really got to tell the growth team, maybe that's something that's on the edge of what's uh, a decent thing to do. What's interesting about that is Jeff Bezos will say a similar thing on Amazon.
0: He'll say scale gives you power, and although it increases your size, it also enables you to be more nimble than you were before in the following respect. If you need to change your course, you've got the capital to do it. Is that how Zuckerberg sees it?
1: I think somewhat similar, but the the, the scale just gets the hunger for more. And as they build up more and more and more, uh, obviously, uh, you can't grow as fast. Because you have so many people already on there mm-hmm. in the United States, they're somewhat leveled out. Because you know it's harder and harder to find people who aren't on Facebook or now, one it's of
0: Interesting about. Remember Chris Hughes? You know he was one sure, of sure he was he, one of the original founders. He was Mark Zuckerberg's roommate at Harvard, mm-hmm. and he had the big piece. I think it was in the New York Times several months ago. Talked about the downside of Facebook. That's right. And he and he, he delivered an anecdotal story where they were driving home from work one night, and he said, Did "You see what we're doing here?" and You see the growth that we've achieved. And he he gave a moment about where Zuckerberg realized how many people he employed, which told Zuckerberg how responsible he is for more and more people. And that apparently struck a nerve with him. You remember that anecdote? Yeah, yeah. What did that tell you?
1: Well, it tells me that what's in his immediate surroundings has more impact to him than the somewhat nebulous thought of billions and billions of people on Facebook. And this was a small team with unbelievable reach. And it's easy to forget what the impact or not understand the impact of what you're doing when it's in a distant country where no one in your company can speak the language. Now, these are smart people. They should be figure out that, uh, that to extend ourselves this far uh, is risky. So and specifically, let's look at like Myanmar, right? The country used to call Burma. They were very eager to get out there like every other country, and they had a plan to grow, which was uh, we don't have to take the time to translate things ourselves. We're not going to hire translators to uh, do a version of Facebook that works in Myanmar. We'll put it out there, and some native speakers will translate it themselves, and they'll improve it. And it'll it'll be usable before anyone at Facebook can speak the language and see what's on there and worry about whether this content is going to cause problems, whether that you know uh, extending uh, a genocide on Facebook uh, could possibly happen. Mm. And. When it happened, people alerted them to it, but they were slow to act. And you know, some things that happened that caused violence in twenty twelve, Facebook was slow to act, and it wasn't really until twenty fifteen that they bothered to translate their rule book of what content is appropriate on Facebook, what content they'll take down. Not till twenty fifteen did they change, you know, they translate that rule book into Burmese. Well, wow, very
0: interesting answer. And on the heels of that answer, I'll just go back to page 466. You write parenthetically, it is exceedingly odd that a company headed by Jewish executives frequently found itself in situations that involved alleged anti-Semitism.
1: Right. You mentioned one of them, like in, in the, the Jew hater. How did the company react to that? Uh, to that statement? <laughs> yeah. Well, they, they haven't gone line by line on me yet. Uh, but maybe it's
0: easier then to explain how, how they responded to it as, as a company.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, as, as a company, well, they, they invoked their heritage. They said, obviously, we don't want to do this. But it's just one of many, many unintended consequences that, that, that came up. You know, and right now, um, in the last three years, they've been pummeled from all sides and with good reason. Page seven. I know I'm jumping around, but I yeah,
0: I told okay. you I would do that. Page seven, you say, quote, this is Zuckerberg now. There's this fundamental thing at an early age, you looked at something and felt like this can be better. I can break down this system and make it better.
1: Yeah, that's the mindset of Mark Zuckerberg. And uh, I felt it was important to look at him. He's inseparable from Facebook itself. He's He's the founder. He's still the CEO with total control. He has more than half the voting shares. So anything he wants to do at Facebook gets done. So I I thought it was important to look into his past. I go into his childhood. I talk to his parents to learn what he was like as a kid. There was one really interesting story that his mother told me, that he went to school in uh, Westchester County, outside of New York, a bedroom community of New York City, and he was going to the public school, felt they didn't have enough computer courses, wanted to go to a private school. And there was one down the road, a really good school called Horace Mann. His mother really wanted him to go because his older sister was going away to college that year. She didn't want to lose two kids the same year. He had heard that uh, a fancy school called Exeter, Phillips Exeter in New Hampshire, had a good computer uh, center that he wanted to visit, and, and he wanted to go to school there. So the mother said, listen, I don't want you to go away. Uh, can you at least talk to the people at Horace Mann? Go to the interview. Get a good look at it. And he said, well, I will. I'll, I'll go and do the interview, but I'm going to Exeter. And he went to Exeter. And I thought of that time and again when I saw numerous cases. I dug into you know how each decision was made at Facebook. And there was numerous cases where people around him said, Mark, maybe this isn't a great idea to do this. Maybe this isn't a good idea to automatically put people in a program that uh, when they buy something on the web, it'll be reported to the people who look at th- their news feeds and, and see that, oh, so-and-so bought a diamond ring on this jewelry site. Uh, you know, uh, maybe we should ask them first whether they want to be in this program. And Mark would say, "No, let's let's roll it out first, and we'll fix it later if there's a problem." Um, and I just thought, in times like that, Exeter, how okay. come? Because he makes his decisions, you know, uh, solely by what he's dug in and feels is is best. These um, and early on early, an- on, early on, in Facebook's history, there was a, a, pro, a product, the newsfeed, the thing which stares us in the face each time, all of us. Get on uh, Facebook when that it was announced, people uh, went crazy. It was sprung on people. Um, and the difference between the way Facebook was with newsfeed and previously was previously people just put up their information on their profile. you had to look for it with a newsfeed it was shoved in your face. So if you if, if you broke up with someone uh, it would be broadcast to all your friends and people felt that was a privacy violation and they objected to the product being forced on them. They didn't get a choice. and Zuckerberg said, no 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 they're going to like it. I'm not going to taking it down. I might write these little tools, privacy tools that some people might use to limit uh, what they share uh, or who sees it. But I'm going to stick to that. And it worked out for him. People loved the product. And that was the lesson he took that you know, people complain it could always be fixed. Uh, maybe they'll like it later on. And uh, it, to a certain extent, that worked for a number of years, but now it doesn't work anymore.
0: What you're telling us is, he said, let's, "Let's let's do it. Let's and let's see what sort of reaction we get. And if the pushback is strong enough, maybe we adjust the way we're doing this. Right. But if it's not, we'll continue to do it. That's essentially what you're saying. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. And but it it got to be where you know more and more. These decisions, you know, push the boundaries of privacy. Like one of them in 2010, for instance, uh, Facebook had this platform that allowed outside software developers, people writing programs, to build it on top of Facebook the way they do now with uh, your mobile phone. You download an app. There were apps that lived on Facebook. And he had to give these developers, people who didn't work for Facebook, information about the people who signed up for those apps and a little information about people who were in their social network, um, other people. So in 2010, he extended this. So if someone signed up for an app that ran on Facebook, that outside developer would not only get their private information, the information they have on Facebook, but the information of everyone in their social network, all their friends. Now, each person on Facebook has an average of 130 friends, so it's possible that you would sign up not too many people for your application, and you don't belong to Facebook or anything, and you get that information, but also the information of all their friends, and that's how a a researcher at Cambridge University, a couple years later, did a survey. He paid 200,000 people a few pennies to take the survey, and he wound up getting the information of 87 million Facebook users, 87 million profiles, almost none of which had the permission of the people whose profiles they were. some moral hazards there, aren't there, Stephen? I guess so. Why don't we
0: pause right there? More Hammer time after this.
2: Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services, marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? You write
0: on page 14, uh, the news stunned you. A billion people had logged on to Facebook in one day. Quote, it stopped me cold. A sizable chunk of the world's population had been active on Mark Zuckerberg's network. And that's where we are today. It's a company that's, what, 15 years old?
1: Right. You've interviewed him. Yeah, they just turned 16, actually. 16. What was the date on that? Uh, February 4th, I think, 2004. Okay. You
0: right. interviewed him nine times, I believe? Nine was times that? in this book.
1: I interviewed him a whole bunch of times and, earlier, too. And, and the too.
0: first time you met him, I think it was 2006, right? Correct. So that's 14 years ago. You reflect on that now. And what you write about at times is when you made the introduction, there were several pauses.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. What well, explains I, that? Well, I, I had heard about Facebook, their the spectacular success in colleges at the time. I was working for Newsweek magazine then, writing a story about you know uh, the social apps, on you know on on the web i was before the mobile explosion and thought i'd just meet this guy zuckerberg maybe get a quote for the story so we were both going to be the same technology conference and i suggested we have lunch together and we did that And i asked him some softball questions about facebook like how many people are on it and how many people in your company and he didn't say anything he just stared at me i thought this is unusual that did i offend him is he going through some sort of episode what's going on here and eventually, he answered a, a couple of questions, but it was really unnerving to have him not say anything to me. I thought this is a, this is a very odd guy. Uh, uh, later, he got to be better at interviewing, thank God. But uh, what I learned while doing the book, though, when I really dug into the early days of Facebook, was that the same guy who seemed he couldn't get a sentence out was brilliantly outlining a plan essentially to take over the world with with Facebook. At the time, remember, it's only college students, but in 2006, he was redesigning Facebook so it would go to everyone. He was designing the news feed, and he was writing out his vision where everyone in the world would have Facebook. And I found this out by getting hold of the secret notebook that he kept at the time Which uh, he destroyed a few years later, but I managed to get hold of some copied pages uh, that existed, which laid out this vision and actually gave me a window into his psyche. Hmm.
0: So you're a reporter, right, and a writer? You consider yourself a journalist? I do. I do. I hope you
1: do too. Yeah, yeah, indeed. (laughs) Do you
0: think that on the level of journalism that Facebook has killed it at the local level? Um,
1: What do you mean killed? Uh, uh, It's been uh, contributing to that. I I wouldn't say that. You know uh journalism was in good shape without facebook uh the loss of uh classified ads and other things you know mounted to a perfect storm of which Facebook is you know a particularly dangerous But, but front. we can we can agree that technology itself has yeah changed the totally, world of media totally yeah doing. oh totally and and Facebook has not helped and, you know basically uh when you get into your news on facebook the you know, the journalistic institution isn't collecting from it. And the places which spend a lot of money and effort into reporting things and trying to get, get it right uh, are usually overwhelmed by stories, uh, sometimes from publications that don't exist with stories that didn't happen. Yeah. I just think I'm, I'm from Ohio,
0: Cincinnati, and every time I go home, I just, I think there's less and less reporting on the local level than there was before. And it's, you know, the, the landscape yeah, I'm from is, Philadelphia, same thing. So you see it too, right? Yeah. I'm not necessarily sure that that's a great thing. That's a terrible thing, I think.
1: You know, I, I don't know about you. When I was a kid, we got two newspapers, one yeah. in the morning, one in the afternoon, and, you know, people devoured them yeah. page by page. Mm-hmm. Um, now you, you're on the subway, and the people used to hold newspapers just staring to their phones. Mm-hmm. What did the like button do for them? I, I think you wrote it was the gateway drug for data gathering? That's right. What is that? It's that? interesting. The, the like button, and everyone sees it as a little thumbs up thing that you you click... Uh, it started out as a way to just say, um, hey, this uh, post I saw on my newsfeed. Uh, you know, I, I like it, you know, and it's a little signal saying I saw it, I, I liked it. And you know, Facebook took a while to roll it out because they were worried that it, they had this um, – easy way to respond to a a post, people wouldn't comment on it and they wouldn't spend as much time on Facebook. But then they realized if they extended that like button out to the web, so millions and millions of websites now have that little thumbs up on their site, then that would give Facebook a little piece of information. It would almost, you know... uh, Keep Facebook surveillance on you wherever you went on the web and give you valuable information about you know your interests and what you know, and what you were thinking of buying even so it, it, Facebook really shifted its ad philosophy to one that 's very heavily based on data from then on and that like button is so powerful at one point. I talked to a researcher who did a study this guy wasn 't working in facebook 's research team um, and he found. That with 15 likes, Facebook knew as enough about you as someone you were acquainted with. Mm. And then 30 likes, someone who is maybe you were more friendly with, 100 likes, a family member, and with 300 likes, and we'll press this button a lot of times, Facebook knows you better than your spouse does. Come on. That's what he that's what he found yeah
0: the like button though has changed lives so there's 12 year olds who are freaking out about how many likes they get when they post something on Instagram yeah. which is
1: owned by Facebook that's another uh, uh, you know effect of it that if you're able to see that people will you know, go out of their way Clearly. to get content, which makes people, you know, to click, click, yeah. click, 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 click that, that like mm-hmm. button. And it really becomes a race for attention, which, yeah, but, uh, you know, degrades the experience for everybody. Agreed on that. Uh, but it's not going to change. In fact, they'll probably just Well, actually, out, uh, the, the Instagram now is saying we're going to suppress the like button as people see it. But of course, Instagram and Facebook still get to see the likes. Uh, so they can still target based on those. Very likes. interesting. That's a good data point.
0: Very. Yeah. I just got a few more here. Um, WhatsApp, Instagram, Snapchat, which is outside the ownership right. of Facebook. Where's this going?
1: Well, uh, in the, about 10 years ago, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, uh, had a near death experience for Facebook when mobile came along. Uh, Facebook was slow and he realized that, you know, uh, Facebook had to stay competitive. So he built up his mobile and then he started buying companies that he felt w- would be a threat to him. Uh, Instagram is the great example. Uh, it was a how, pho- much, how much? did they pay? A billion dollars. Just a billion. Just a billion. It seems cheap now. That's right. You know, I found it ironic because I talk in 2006, that, that fateful year for Facebook. Um, Yahoo tried to tried to buy Facebook. And they offered Mark Zuckerberg a billion dollars. And he resisted. He really felt that Facebook's future was such that it was going to be worth way more. But his investors disagreed with him. His executives disagreed with him. And he had to fight them to withstand that okay, wh- offer. What does he do with Instagram then? What, he, what he does exactly what Yahoo tried to do but couldn't do. He overwhelms the founders. And he developed a playbook that he was able to convince them to sell to him. It involved his personal involvement. It involved a big, a huge amount of money at the time. Instagram was trying to fund a, around that valued it at half that. And then also he promised them independence. He did the same thing for WhatsApp two years later, um, and, and offered them twenty billion dollars. They couldn't possibly turn it down. It was the classic yeah. offer they couldn't refuse. And now these things, you know, are, are worth more, and they're part of this plan of, of Facebook to really dominate the whole social world of everyone. Yeah. The last chapter in your book is called The Next Facebook. But before you answer that, I'm very
0: keen on trying to understand where each entity in technology is going. So let's start with, let's start with Instagram. Okay. What's the
1: next chapter for Instagram, do you believe? Well, the next chapter is getting more tightly wound into Facebook. So people like Instagram, a lot of people like Instagram a lot more than they like Facebook. They Facebook is associated with all the problems we've had with it, the privacy violations. And somehow people skate past the fact that Instagram is owned by Facebook. Um, so Facebook wants to you know, get the use of that, you know, so people will still use Instagram, but under the hood, it's all one mm-hmm. product. All the data that you, that Facebook knows about you from Instagram, from WhatsApp, from blue its main app uh, all gets consolidated together so facebook can more actively show you the ads and facebook fuels growth and huge growth too for instagram
0: the other one is whatsapp and right a huge international exactly, growth. What, exactly where's that going because what he will say consistently is that we derive no revenue yet
1: from whatsapp well that means that it's you know uh Huge opportunity for growth. So the idea that Instagram, you know, because now it's beginning to fulfill its potential for revenue and WhatsApp is only beginning to do that show, you know, is a, is a great way for Facebook to grow because, you know, they're squeezing as much as possible out of the traditional app. So here's a way that they can just keep going and their stock price can keep going up and they can keep getting money to, to knock off that remaining few billion of people who aren't on any Facebook properties yet. Hmm. Eventually,
0: do they run ads on WhatsApp? I guess they could. Well, yeah, the,
1: the ads and also other kind of commerce. They want to use it as a way where people buy things. And that's why, in part, I think they were so aggressive in the last couple of years to come up with this cryptocurrency plan called Libra. So they wanted to, you know, basically to create their own currency so people around the world, as you pointed out, WhatsApp is an international app, can buy things without worrying about, you know, uh, currency fluctuations, translating from one, you know, uh, currency to another. Um, So Facebook would basically have its own money system. But they've turned tail on that decision. They had to back down because basically people don't trust Facebook anymore. And uh, if you don't trust the company, why would you trust them Mm. with your money? Snapchat. Snapchat resisted the Zuckerberg playbook. It was really interesting, and I found that you know uh, fascinating because uh, Evan Spiegel, the CEO of Snapchat, uh, you know, withstood that. Zuckerberg blitz, in part because, this is like a weird thing about the internet, it, he's only a few years older than Zuckerberg, but he felt that he was of a different generation, and Zuckerberg was of uncool, you know, like he was like old, and like it didn't get it. So, you know, uh, Spiegel felt that I don't, I don't have to learn anything about What's cool from them and i'm not going to be in the position of teaching mark zuckerberg what's cool so i'm going to stay on my own and um, he had a strong enough foundation in his company he was able to say no my sense is anytime i'm around my nieces and nephews they're getting
0: constant notifications from snapchat so i, I think the business is lively and viable am i
1: wrong well <clears throat> there's still new new things now TikTok is what people are talking about the company owned by a Chinese company, right? And that's that's something, the you know the younger siblings of your nieces and nephews are already using. They're dancing into their cameras uh, yeah, for fifteen seconds. I think you know wherever the
0: adults are, kids don't want to be there, so
1: they have to stay one step ahead of the adults. Yeah, that, and which Snapchat still is, I believe. Yeah, you know, Snapchat still is, but TikTok now is a threat to Snapchat, and uh, and. Because now people are looking at Facebook saying, well, you have too many properties. This might be an antitrust violation. We might think about splitting up Facebook. Um, I don't think they're going to split up Facebook, but they're definitely going to prevent Facebook from making big purchases like a WhatsApp or an Instagram. So I think at one point Facebook would have tried to buy TikTok. That's not going to happen. Wow. So then answer your question in the last chapter called the next Facebook. What is it? The next Facebook is... Uh, We've been talking about it, tying together all those properties. So it's one Facebook and Facebook will say, hey, you can't break us up because we're just one company. You know, so pulling out uh, Instagram from Facebook would be like, you know, like pulling out someone's lungs, right? You can't do Mm -hmm. it without killing the whole body.
0: Your book opens up in memory of Lester Levy, 1920 to 2017. Sorry you didn't see that Super Bowl, Dad.
1: I'm from Philadelphia. He was I, an Eagles fan, huh? he a total Eagles fan, and oh. you know uh, that season had started, and my dad passed unfortunately wow he was ninety six lived a great life, World War II That's veteran amazing and, the, but the, but, the uh, Eagles won in Minneapolis that year they won you know, and actually it's a, it's, this is a, a strange story, but uh, the week uh, he died that the Eagles played the Giants, and they, they didn 't people don't remember they didn 't start their season great that year, and it was unclear whether they were going to have a great season. And they were behind and they just got close enough, like maybe to midfield or something like that in the last play. And this rookie field goal kicker came up uh, and you know, they needed like one point, three points. They needed the whole field goal to win. And he just kicked the ball and it just barely went over the goalposts. And I felt my dad, he gave that a little push. Mm, nice in memory of Lester Levy. Stephen, terrific work. Great meeting you. And you,
0: congratulations Bill. on the book. It's Thank called you. Facebook, The Inside Story. He is Stephen Levy, and check it out. Thank you very much. Thank you, Bill. A pleasure. I'm Bill Hemmer. This is Hemmer